one of our uh, very human uh, clingings, we could say, is the, the, the grasping for certainty. We want to make things certain, well understood, neat. We like to know where we are, know how we are, know who we are, know the way things are. And even though that seems to happen very, very, very little of the time, we nevertheless spend a lot of energy or a lot of hope pursuing some kind of certainty. We might have engaged in this practice with the hope that it might move us from some uncertainty, some not knowing, some being confused, to some certainty, some understanding, some knowing. Here comes the bad news. Seems to me after 20-something years of doing this that it had just gone the other way. Less and less certainty. More and more ambiguity. So that might not sound very inspiring for some of you. And yet there's something very rich, very real, very alive about the truthful ambiguity of things. And the kind of what we might call certainty, there's a Pali word the Buddha used, sadha. It's often translated as faith. But I think of it really as a kind of a conviction which is a kind of certainty. But it's not an intellectual certainty where we know what this is and we know what that is. It's a kind of, uh, we might call it a conviction of the heart. There's some kind of certainty about how to orientate to life. How to align ourselves with the way life is so that our freedom of being is aligned with what we were calling yesterday this freely unfolding process of life. But in terms of some kind of certainty of who we are and what this is, I don't think certainty is the right word for that. It's a little bit what I want to explore today in what we've referred to in the previous days as the Buddha's teachings on clinging to existence and non-existence. So I invite you into ambiguity. The realm of ambiguity. I just sense... uh, what your relationship is to that as I speak about it might feel exciting might feel uh, uneasy we've been pointing out ambiguity really a lot these days we looked at the ambiguity with the force of desire and that contemplative question what do I really want and the, the ambiguity of whether the, the what is most important in the wanting is the thing 
the person or the situation or the experience that I want, which first presents itself as being the most important thing. Or whether there's something in the movement itself, what we call the longing, the yearning. Whether there's certainly that question, whether there's more value for us, more for us to learn in the wanting itself than there is in the repetitive, cyclical pursuit of what it is we seem to want. We looked at ambiguity in views yesterday. Those views that we hold, sometimes just completely unconsciously, or sometimes those, those views that we hold as being right and true and proper, those views that we're ready to defend and argue with others about. And there's certainly some room for ambiguity there. Whether those things are true in some way, or whether they're a kind of a Pavlovian response. And the ways our views have been conditioned we looked at some of those conditioning factors. And the way I think, you know, wisdom teachings point out the ambiguity of things, which certainly can be quite uncomfortable. While teachings, wisdom, points out the ambiguity, It's practice, it's love that resolves ambiguity. Not not by making it one thing or the other, but by learning to live, by daring to live in the ambiguousness of the truth or in the truth of ambiguity. Daring to have our heart open enough to both the this and the that. A heart wide enough to accommodate the wanting, to accommodate the views, to accommodate our sense of things as this or that without getting trapped. So in this light, with invoking the wisdom that points out ambiguity and invoking the love that can meet it, we'll try in some way to explore a vision free of clinging to existence and non-existence. Shakespeare's most famous line speaks partly to this and certainly an an existential dilemma to be or not to be. To be or not to be. It's a way of expressing something about existence and non-existence. To be or not to be. He says that is the question. 
some of you may have heard me say this before, but uh, I don't know where I got it, but I heard that that was translated, that the Hamlet was translated into... Um, Japanese, and then was translated back again via one of these online automatic translating things, right? Bible fish or something. So when the, the Hamlet soliloquy was translated into Japanese, then when it came back automatically translated into English, that line came out as, it is or it isn't, isn't it? <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> I'm not sure Shakespeare would have liked it. <laughs> but that expresses very, very, something very nice, something kind of ambiguous about the nature of the way we tend to relate to the existence or not of things, the existence or not of ourselves. It seems like we have two options. Things exist or they don't exist. But then there's a little bit of doubt, the Buddha's doubt that comes out in the translation. It is or it isn't. Isn't it? Isn't it? That isn't it is the voice of Dharma practice. That isn't it is the voice of ambiguity. That isn't it is the willingness to look beyond the seeming black and white categories for an, uh, another kind of truth that might be there in the ambiguity. So, to bring this closer to our experience, we easily identify with being something, being some way. And that happens with every I thought. Every thought that begins with I want or I am or I think some of the ways we've been looking at over the last days how often if we look carefully we notice that in the the building of identity moment to moment the building of identity there is both uh, a building of what I am and um, implicit in that is also a, a, a loss of, or a pushing away of, or ignoring, or a denying of what I am not. I'll try to explain what I mean a bit more fully. When I have the thought, the experience, oh, I'm happy. Right? Why not? So, but, so some, some, there's some contact with something we like. So happiness arises. We recognize something as happiness. Of course, we can actually only recognize the experience of happiness because of the contrast with the opposite. If there was no sadness in our life, we wouldn't have any reference point by which to call something happy. Right? If there was no night, there wouldn't be the reference point to call day. We conceive of day in its contrast with night. If there was no night, we wouldn't think of this as daytime. We wouldn't say, oh look, it's light. No, light, if there was only light, we wouldn't refer to it as light. Right? So in the, in, the, in the sense of I, I am a certain way, 
there's all the not noticing of all the ways I'm not. It's a kind of the kind of ordinariness to that, and yet we tend to actually again we wouldn't say it philosophically, but we tend in that moment to actually believe that's how I am or who I am. Oh, I'm happy. And to the extent that we identify, that we build a sense of ourselves on that moment of happiness, to that extent, if we look closely, we can see a kind of desperation within it. A desperation for things to stay that way. A desperation to somehow make that true, because we like it. I'm happy, I'm happy. Oh yes, I'm happy. And there's a kind of setup there for when the ambiguous ambiguous nature of life reasserts itself, the changing nature of life asserts itself, happiness changes into something else, boredom, sadness, confusion, doubt, loneliness, something else. Then we lose the happiness, we forget the happiness, we just swing with our tendency for certainty, our tendency for black and white, our tendency to um, identify in a limited way. And we say, oh, I'm lonely. As if that's who I am now. I am lonely. We don't think philosophically that defines us, but that's the way we take it to be. We define ourselves by the momentary experience we're having. So that's the kind of close way in which we construct our sense of identity in a way that appears to us as rigid, as fixed, and as true, moment by moment, even though it's constantly changing. We say, I'm happy, as if that's who or how I am. And then a few moments later we say, oh, I'm lonely, as if that's how and who I am. And then sometime later, I'm something else. In that way, moment to moment, we construct a large chunk of of who and how we take ourselves to be. There are many other ways in which we maintain identity. And the extent to which we hold to that identity is the extent to which we disidentify with everything else. So when we hold that identity very lightly, our sense of everything else is equally included. Somebody I know quite well was speaking to me recently about a great deal of mental difficulty they were having. I mean, really a a great deal of of, uh, mental illness, really great deal of confusion, doubt, a kind of loss of uh, the person's usual capacity to kind of uh, sort things through in their mind. Very painful to, to listen to, and to meet with, and to sense their pain and confusion. And... She reported to me 
as as we as we explored and spoke together, being surprised by how um, compassionate she felt that I was being in listening. She said, oh, "I can really feel your your care for me and your and uh, your love for me." In in as I say this, and I replied that it was because I didn't feel apart from that. I didn't feel different from that. I didn't feel separate from that. I'm not experiencing that kind of mental anguish or difficulty at all. But when we hold our own identity, our own state of mind, lightly, loosely, freely, it's not really different from other states of mind in in some way. It's only when we identify ourselves in one particular way that we set ourselves apart from other states of mind. And then we exist in fear of going towards some states or in desperation to keep hold of other states. Freedom of being isn't about having any particular state of mind. It's the freedom to fluidly, freely navigate all states of mind, any states of mind. Like we've been saying, there's no wrong experience. There's nothing that needs to be rejected or kept at bay. It's all welcome. Other ways that that kind of rigidity of identification gets maintained. It can get maintained in any way, but there's a a kind of what I am and what I'm not. As that expands a little bit, what we are and what we're not. Who we are and who we're not. And whether that's on a kind of tribal level. First we we just construct a sense of ourself. And there's just self and world. World starts off as mother, basically the mothering person, the, and the mother is the is the world. It's our contact with the world through the breast, through the kind of maternal embrace. And then we start to be able to differentiate a little bit more. And there's just this kind of this world, and yet our own world, what we identify with, grows a little bit. Maybe family and siblings and friends. And then as we go to school, you know, there's a kind of intense, as we're just learning to, to identify in some way. We're learning to identify who we think we are, what we think we like, what we think we want, what we think about things. The process of identity as it forms. And you see, in the, in, as that's forming, how children, for example, can be quite cruel. There's a lot of us and them, who we are and who we're not, who's in and who's out. And tragically, some people never seem to grow very much beyond that. Wars are fought because of an incapacity to see beyond us and them. They are identity with a certain group, identity with a certain nationality, the identity with a certain religion. 
And as I say, when that's tightly held, then there's a, there's a kind of gulf, a black and whiteness between what I identify with and what I identify with not being. And then a fear of the other, out of which conflict comes. Sometimes it's not held that strongly. That's a kind of a particularly gross manifestation of that. But I think it's also important. I think it's a responsibility we have as Dharma practitioners to look deeply into identity. And even if it's not an active sense of conflict with or fear of or mistrust of or hatred towards the other, there's often just a dismissal of otherness. We live, most of us, in a, in a, a privileged realm as uh, first world citizens. And yet we don't live in the, the vacuum of the first world. I know some of you are involved in, in human rights and in social justice work and uh, in gender politics and in other work that actively seeks to break down the divisions between the us and themness of our lives. And how easily, especially for those who find ourselves in a kind of privileged majority, how easily it is to not notice that which we don't identify with. Especially for those of us who are white, heterosexual men. It's with, there's so much natural privilege, natural um, majority-ness in that. And even though in our, in our culture there's a, lot, there's a lot of movement towards the kind of recognition of... Uh, the interplay between majority and minority. And there's a lot of initiatives and a lot of awareness that continues to grow around gender politics and race politics and inclusion and exclusion. That, that, that kind of understanding can only really come to fruition to the extent that each of us looks at our own sense of identity. And that's not just about what I identify with being, but it's a lot to do with all that's invisible to me in not identifying with. This is one of the ways, or these are some of the ways that we, that we cling to, that we suffer over, that we cause suffering to others through the clinging to existence and non-existence to identity and not to identifying with and not identifying with. There's much that we could say about that. Somebody asked the Buddha once, for goodness sake, mate, is there a self or isn't there? 
And this might be news to some Buddhists, might be news to some Dharma practitioners, might be news to some of us here. The Buddha didn't answer. Wouldn't answer. Wouldn't cling to self or not self. Wouldn't um, get stuck in the idea that there is a self here because it seems to be unfindable but wouldn't get stuck in the in the negating oh no there's no self here it's become a kind of um, partly the misunderstood presentation of, of the teachings on not self have become a kind of awkward dilemma for Buddhism a kind of embarrassing dilemma sometimes you can watch a Buddhist squirm when they're asked, if there's no self, what gets reborn? And the, uh, um, um, <laughs> but I think it's actually helpful for us to make that an awkward personal dilemma. <laughs> right? We like certainty. So the usual certainty is, oh, there's a self, it's here, this is it, this is me, right? That's the certainty we've grown up with. So certain that it's not even seems a bit weird to even question it. Is there a self there? You ask a normal person, is there, is there a self there? What? What? Who are you? This is me. What, what's the problem? And yet, as we and some of you referred to this through the days, as there's a certain kind of, as there's an investigation of what we take to be ourselves, a natural kind of deconstruction that, that starts to reveal itself. Of what I thought I took to be me, when I look for that, I find a kind of, I find a lot of process alive. Body in process, heart in process, mind in process. But I can't, I can't find any kind of essential meanness. We have a sense, and I think this is important, because this is where our practice is, we have a sense of essential meanness. And that's much more important than any kind of debate on whether there is a self or whether there isn't a self. We have a sense of a locus of awareness, a location of experience, a sense of Hearness. This is where it happens. This is where seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling happens. This is where happiness and sadness and joy and sorrow happens. And we're kind of invited into the hearness in ambiguity. There's no room for investigating this field of experience that in everyday parlance I call me. There's no room for investigating this if we start off from a position of certainty. It might be what we could call the worldly certainty. This is who I am. Or it might be some kind of adopted Buddhist certainty. There's no one here. I was once in an, in an ashram in India 
the people around a, a, a famous uh, Advaita teacher, uh, Punjaji, whose approach was very much that kind of classic Advaitin approach of uh, saying, well, who's asking the question? So the, the undermining of anything we take to be self, in the sense that that which we take to be self isn't, isn't really there. Having lunch with somebody once at this ashram, I asked, oh, could you pass the salt? And I passed the salt. I said, thank you. And she said, hey, there's no one to thank. <laughs> so I went like this. I raised my hand. I went like that. And she flinched. And I said, hey, there's no one to slap. <laughs> So it doesn't matter whether our certainty goes one way or another. It's a, it's a, it's a rigid thing. It's, a, it's just it's an idea. Each as preposterous as the other. When we land in some certainty. When we, say, when we have the experience, we have to look at our own experience to see this. When we have the sense of me, this is who I am. When we reify, one way of speaking about this, when we reify the self, right, this, we lose everything else. We lose the context. The stronger the sense of me is, the stronger the sense of separation from everything else is. That's what I mean by reify, right? The stronger the sense, oh, this is me, and this is who I am, and this is what it's like. The stronger the me, me, me that's going on, the less room there is for anything else. The more sense of me, the less room there is for you, or for all of this. To the extent that we identify with this field of experience as me, as a solid thing, to that extent we lose the universe. The, whole, the wholeness that's utterly inseparable. Like we were exploring in the movement today. There's no body without the space that it inhabits. That's true in the sensations as we move. That's true visually. We tend to focus on the thingness. Oh, what's, in the, what's here? You and you and you and you. But look, we can't find any you without the wholeness of the context. We don't exist in a vacuum. So to the extent that I identify with this, to that extent I lose everything else. But if I go to the other extreme, if I say, oh, there's, no, there's nothing here, there's no self. 
And that sense, that experience, sometimes there can be an experience, just in the same way that there can be an experience of this seeming to be me, sometimes there can equally be, sometimes called a spiritual experience, of a sense of a complete dissolution of all that I've taken to be me. A complete unfindability. Mind might be very silent. There's no I-thoughts being produced. So no reference point for self. Body might seem utterly unsolid. Just a kind of light dance of vibration and sensation. Inseparable from the vibration of sound. The vibration of seeing. The vibration uh, that, that one can feel sometimes in heightened states of awareness. Or that the walls have. And the whole universe just as vibration. As energy in movement. No, no sense of this being apart or different from that. Just a complete co-participation of life with itself. But it would be a tragedy if the conclusion we drew, because of our need for certainty, if we flipped from there is to, oh, there isn't. There's nothing, there's no self, there's nothing here, there isn't. When we land in there is, we lose the universe. But when we land in there isn't, we lose ourselves. We lose the personal, the unique, the individual, the vital. This unique feeling, thinking, perceiving, responding organism... That's right here. The kind of tragedy to be lost in, to cling to either existence or non existence. It is or it isn't. Our practice is to invite the doubt, the ambiguity, the, isn't it? So, it's, we have to start, really, with what, what do we know? If I'm, if I'm to put aside my certainty, what am I left with? That's a real contemplation for us. If I'm to put aside my certainty, what am I left with? And it's not easy to put aside our certainty, right? We've been training ourselves in it for a few decades. So maybe I can't even put it aside. But if I somehow look past it, look through it, we spoke yesterday about making our views transparent. If we put aside the, conv- the cognitive conviction, which ha- is always dual, right? That's the way mind thinks, is in terms of this or that. It is or it isn't. If we put aside that cognitive certainty for a kind of a conviction of the heart, there's something undeniable that's happening here. 
something that we might call, without falling into the trap of there is or isn't, that we might call a sense of self, or what I was calling it just now, a field of experience. Notice it as we sit here together. This field of experience is alive, animated. If I go to my old cognitive certainties, I tend to think it's me that's here. And in that me, I set myself apart from you and from everything else. But if I just stay with the sense that the the recognition, the alive contact with this field of experience that's animated, then there's a crack in our certainty. There's the opening to ambiguity. There's room for uh, an interpenetration between what seems to be the seer and what seems to be the seen. What seems to be, what old certainty would say was the hearer and what's revealed as the heard. It's the same animation. Life animates as sunshine as wind in the trees, as body breathing, as thinking and feeling, as you and as me. What a shame if our clinging to certainty if our reductive tendency could only be comfortable with existence or non-existence, with this or that, with here or there, with always setting things apart, with always feeling ourselves to be apart from life. There's life and then there's this thing in it called me. Listen to the wind. Listen to your breath. Is there really, in the immediate contact, is there a place where one stops and the other starts? May we really see through all that we've taken ourselves to be. May may we all really see that which we've set ourselves apart from. Those who we've set ourselves apart from. May we dare 
to abandon our old certainties. May we really discover a true conviction, an authentic knowing that doesn't have to land anywhere, that doesn't need certainty. May we be free in our ambiguity. As free as the wind that blows, the sun that shines, the trees that grow, the stars that shine. As free as this life that animates us, moves in us, invites us into a profound intimacy with it. This is the invitation of this practice. May it be the fruits of our lives for each one of us here and for all of us everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.